0: Jesse Owens became an athletic hero in the midst of a country in turmoil. Born in 1913, he grew up under racism and poverty. As a black junior hire, his family was too poor to allow him to participate in extracurricular activities. Instead of being able to run in track after school, he had to go to work. The junior high coach saw him running at recess one time and approached him and explained to him that he wanted to train him. And Jesse explained he had to work, and he said, well, I'll train you before school. We can meet before school or in the mornings, we can train, then you can work afterwards. And so he began to train Jesse. Jesse went on to high school. As a senior in high school, Jesse Owens tied the world record for the 100-yard dash in 9.4 seconds. And yet this still would not change the way that he was treated in America as a black man. In college, he was required to live off campus with other African American athletes. And when he traveled with the team, Jesse could either order, carry out, or eat at black only restaurants. Likewise, he was uh, only allowed to sleep in black hotels. On one occasion, a white hotel would allow the black athletes to stay, but they had to use the back door and they had to use the elevator in the back. It was before a, a, a large track meet, a national event that Jesse Owens had fallen down some stairs and he injured himself. It was uncertain whether he would be able to run in his events. Before the events, he was receiving treatment and preparing himself, deciding whether he would run. He decided that he would run. And so he stepped to the blocks, he ran the 100-yard dash, and he again tied the world record. Fifteen minutes later, he went over to the long jump. Prior to the long jump, he walked up to the world record spot and he put a handkerchief down. He walked back, he ran the the path, and he jumped the long jump and he beat the world record by six and a half inches. Fifteen minutes later, he went to the 200-yard dash and he set another world record. Fifteen minutes later, he ran to the 220 hurdles, setting yet another world record. All this while he was a sophomore in college. Seeing his abilities and his capacity, he decided to forego his Olympic, oh, sorry, his scholastic career, and he joined the American Olympic national team to run in the Olympics. Found himself a few months later in Nazi Germany for the 1936 Olympics, and these Olympics at the time were being dubbed the Hitler Olympics, and it was Hitler's ambition to show all the world that the white Aryan race was the most supreme. Human beings on the face of the earth. Yet Jesse Owens had other plans. He won the 100 meter dash. He won the 200 meter dash. He won the long jump. And he also helped the American national team to the 400 meter relay gold medal. Three out of those four events, he set Olympic records. All in the midst of while this racist man, Hitler, looked on. You know, as I think about that story about that story this morning, Jesse Owens had a lot to inspire him for such a race. He had a lot more inspiring him than merely running for Jesse Owens. He wasn't just running to win a race. He wasn't just running because he loved to run. He wasn't just running so that he had a gold medal around his neck or that he could stand on the podium and hear the national anthem. He had far more running than just for that. Jesse Owens was running for his own people. Jesse Owens, in a sense, was running and representing all of the black men and women who had known suppression. And so when he won those events, he was able to stand on the podiums before Nazis and before Hitler. And he was able to exult in his glory. Because he was not just running for himself. Like Jesse Owens... This morning, you Christians, you're running a race for something greater than your own ambition, aren't you? You're running for something greater than just so that people will look at you and tell you how fast you are, or tell you how godly you are, tell you how holy you are. You're running for more than just your own glory and for your own pleasure. And yet sometimes as Christians, we forget. We forget that we're living the Christian life for someone other than ourselves. We begin to get burdened down with our own sins. We begin to get burdened down with our own pursuit of godliness and our own pursuit of holiness. And we forget that we're running the Christian race for somebody more than just myself. And Paul strikes to the heart of that in Colossians chapter 3 verse 17. When he writes, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 really sums up the entirety of that chapter. It's, if you will, it's the theme verse of chapter 3. And even to back up further, the book of Colossians is just simply the Christ-centered book. As Paul is exhorting and arguing and battling that the Colossians would keep Jesus Christ as the pivot of their life, as their supreme love, as their Lord... In Colossians chapter 3, he begins really just the last two chapters of clear admonition to exhortation to how to live a Christ-centered life. How to live a life that shows that Jesus Christ is your Lord, that Jesus Christ is your Master. And in this chapter of how to live a resurrected life, he gives this sunum bonum verse. Now whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is one of those... Christian anthem verses, if you will. It's one of those, almost those Bible-themed verses. It's one of these verses that just circumferences the whole Bible and pulls out the whole Christian life. The magnitude of all the Christian life, of all of life, and every part of it is to be lived for Christ. And so in light of that, in light of this text this morning, I want to give you four solutions, if you will. Four solutions to doing all for Christ. Christ. Four solutions to help you focus why you are living and who you are living for. So the first solution this morning is to recognize that this is an enabled call. Recognize that this is an enabled call. You are called to do all things for the glory of Christ because you have been given the ability to do them. This is not a call for you to try and earn your salvation or to try and do enough good things to make God happy with you. Before Christ saved you, you were helpless to do any good thing. So let us be reminded that this truth is over and against every former deed which we had done before we trusted in Christ. Before we were saved. As our brother John was saved let us be reminded that we were not on our way to hell because we lacked enough good deeds. We were on our way to hell because we could do no good deeds. We were not on our way to hell because we lacked enough good deeds. We were on our way to hell because we had no good deeds. Everything we did was done outside of Christ and was done in sin. the Scriptures are repleting that. Everything that we did before we were saved by the grace of God was tainted with sin and was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. We were like King Midas with a sinful touch. Everything we touched turned to sin. The story is told of the little Ebola virus. He was tired of bringing about destruction. He was tired of bringing pain to everything he touched. And so he he approached the white blood cells. He approached them and said, "Blood cells, white blood cells. I'm, I'm tired of bringing destruction to everything. I want to do good. I want to be a good Ebola virus." And the Ebola viruses looked the white blood cells looked at the little Ebola virus. Their eyes rolled up in the back of their heads and they keeled over because everything that Ebola virus touched it died. No matter what he wanted to do, and so it is with the man apart from Christ. He might want to do good. He might want to please God. He might want to be seen as a good person. But everything he does is tainted with his own sin. And it's impossible to please the Lord. Impossible to do anything apart from Christ. No matter how good our intentions were, the Scripture says, they're tainted with sin. Helping the old lady across the street was done while hoping onlookers would praise you. Working hard was motivated by the cravings for money and prestige. Exercising was fueled with a desire to receive approval from others. Athletic skills flourished with a passion to receive the most praise from men. Honoring your parents was done, hoping you might manipulate them to get what you wanted. The list goes on and on. The list goes on and on of all the ways in which things looked good on the outside, and yet inside, there was evil scheming. And I'm not saying that you had a poster on your wall that said, I live for myself. I'm not saying that on your computer screen, on your screensaver scrolling across was saying, I live for myself. But what I'm saying and what the Bible says is that replete in your hearts and in my heart previously was a desire to only live for ourselves. The unbelieving manifesto, the manifesto of the depraved man internally is that I am God and there is no other. And I recognize that for most of you this morning, this is not a, a new teaching, this is not a new doctrine. Now we hear this often. And yet we must be reminded this morning, lest we forget the mercy that is shown in Colossians chapter 3 and specifically in verse 17. That in this command to do all things for the glory of God, there is a divine enablement for you to do so. God has ordained and prepared and empowered you to live for Him. Colossians 3.17 can happen because Colossians three verse one has happened. You have been raised up with Christ. You are spiritually dead and you've been raised up and enabled and empowered to live your life. For Jesus Christ. The scriptures say when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. When you were dead in your transgressions, you were without any good work. But now Paul says, You, Christian, have been raised up with Christ. Though what once was the mightiest touch of sin has now been turned into a mightiest touch that brings pleasure and glory to Christ. And so, Christian, first, this morning, the solution to enable you to live this kind of Christian life is to remember that you have been enabled. You have been enabled by the power of God and the mercy of Christ. But secondly, this morning, to live this sort of life, we need to be reminded of the extent of the Christian life. I want to remind you this morning of the extent of the Christian life. Paul qualifies it there when he says, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, And so here's the qualifier again, and we know it well. No distinction between the sacred and the secular. No distinction between I feel like worshipping or I don't feel like worshipping. Worship if it seems spiritual, or worship if it seems like a religious thing to do, or worship on Sundays. But the Word of God calls for an expanse that covers every area, every aspect of your worship and your life to the Lord. Now, if you think about it for a minute, as we approach this text, and we ask ourselves, is He really serious? I mean, is, is the Bible really serious when it says every word and every deed in your life? Is that really even practical? I mean, as I spent some time meditating on that, and you read that, it might even seem like it's exasperating. How is it possible for a person to do everything, word or deed, all for His glory? You know, if Pastor James got up here this morning and said, "Uh, Cornerstone, we're going to embark on a new ambition. All of you, I want all of you to memorize the entire Bible. And at first you'd be like, "That's, that's insane. And then he said, and I want it all done in a month. You would all be exasperated. You would say, Pastor James, it's not possible to memorize the entire Bible in a month. It's not possible to memorize 66 books of the Bible and store it all on my puny mind in 30 days. I cannot do that. You are asking too much of me. Let alone when the Bible says that you are to do everything in your entire life for the glory of God. God, that's too much. That's exasperating. You know, there are some feats in life that seem impossible Saul sought to stifle David's love for his daughter by ordering him to bring 100 dead people to him. Pharaoh sought to exasperate the Israelites by taking away their straw, forcing them to get their own straw, and to double the quotient of bricks. I've got a 36-page study guide for one of my last finals in seminary. That's impossible. (laughs) And yet Jesus Christ says, you need to do everything And yet I ask, is this verse frustrating? Is this verse exasperating? Does this verse take us to our wits' end as we're trying to live a Christian life? The definition of frustration says to make vain or ineffectual all efforts, however vigorous or persistent. To frustrate means to make vain or ineffectual all efforts, however vigorous or persistent. And you're going from this depraved person where everything you've done has been tainted with your sin. And now all of a sudden you've been raised up with Christ. And now he's saying that everything you do must be done for him. And yet this verse is not frustrating. And it's not exasperating. In fact, that's not the heart of it at all. God's heart here is a command of freedom. It's freedom to do what God has created you to do. It's freedom to live outside of Auschwitz. Freedom to live outside the gate to the camp of sin. Freedom to live a life that brings God pleasure. And furthermore, it's not that we are to be so consumed with trying to do everything we possibly can to please God, that we become exasperated by His demands. But rather that we should be overwhelmed that we cannot come close to giving Him what He deserves. The Christian heart is not, I have to give more? But rather, I cannot give enough. Our life should be so consumed with pleasing Christ that if You said, My child, You have done enough for me. You have worked hard. Cease from Your labors for me. Our response would be, Lord, do not rob me of the joy that fills my soul as I pour out all I have at Your feet. And there is the great satisfaction. Our Lord said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And the paradox of Jesus' words, he teaches that those who give actually end up on the receiving end. That those who give, that those who give, receive the blessing, and not a physical blessing necessarily, and not a monetary blessing, but the blessing of knowing Christ, the blessing of knowing why you were created, the blessing of knowing why you're walking on this guilty sod. Colossians three seventeen is a call to receive blessing. That though we were, are called slaves of Christ, there is no true slave of Christ who would rather be shackled to anyone else. Will you agree with me in that this morning? There is no true slave of Christ who would rather be shackled to anybody else. What slave receives eternal life in exchange for his sin? What slave receives mercy when he fails to obey his master's command? What slave does his work and he is rewarded for it? When a slave does his work, his reward is that he is not whipped. But the Lord rewards us with His infinite love. When a slave fails his master, he can expect a bloody flogging, but our Lord says, repent and press on. What master imparts his own strength to his slave, making him able to endure the responsibilities? What master prepares a mansion for his slave? What master gives to his slave a crown? What master calls his slave a son? What master makes his slave a co-heir of infinite pleasure and joy? What slave is wrapped in his master's garments and given authority to judge angels? What slave is called to dine at his master's table at a glorious feast? What master takes upon himself the lashings the slave deserves? What master would give his life as a ransom so his slave could go free? What master dies so that his servant can live? What master commands his slave to do his work and then pays him for it? And after all that this kind of master has done, what kind of slave would not want to do everything for his master? What kind of slaves would we be if we stole and robbed from our master and ran away after all of his goodness to us? We would be an unworthy slave. We have a worthy Lord this morning. That God's text is not exasperating to us. God is not asking too much of us. The solution to such kindness from a master like ours is that whatever is done in word or deed is to be done for Him. I find the scope and the magnitude of this verse somewhat of a paradox it's a paradox in the sense that this verse is, is infinitely broad, covering every, everything in your life. And yet at the same time, it is microscopically specific, going down to the intricate details and to the thoughts and intentions of your own heart. It is at one time uh, a, a view of earth from outer space looking upon the earth, and it is at the same time an in close view of a dust mite. That is the scope, that is the breadth and depth of this text. What an incredible command. And ask you again this morning, does this command frustrate you? Does the magnitude of such demands upon the Christian does it frustrate you and exasperate you? Don't let it do that. Don't respond that way. I point to all that our master has done for you, because that alone can be the sole reason for living for him. Listen to first John chapter five, verse three. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I ask you to memorize that verse. His commandments are not burdensome. You know what a burden is, right? It's that heavy weight, it's pilgrim's progress, of that massive pillar of sin upon his back. And He's making His way to the celestial city, burdened down by His guilt and His shame. Yet the Bible says that the commands of Christ are not burdensome. Brothers and sisters, you've got to learn this morning, as I do myself, you've got to learn how to biblically counsel your soul. You've got to learn how to take the truths of Scripture and you've got to preach them to your heart. You've got to take Colossians 3.17, 1 John 5.3 and stand upon a podium of Scripture and preach God's commandments to your heart to remind yourself that His commandments are not burdensome. And that He is calling you to delight and He's calling you to joy and He's calling you to freedom a heart that sees the commands of Christ as burdensome does not see the true nature of what it means to obey Christ. The one burdened by the commands of Christ will not find the problem in the commands of Christ. He will find the problem in his own heart. The struggles with obeying the commands of Christ is not because they are too great, but because you are too weak. Because instead of seeing... The commands of Christ as a delight, you see them as a burden. When I was a child, I greatly disliked broccoli. I loathed it to my soul. It was uh, Armageddon at dinner time if I had to eat the broccoli. I would not eat it. But when I got older, I fell in love with broccoli. But you know what? Broccoli did not change. I changed. The composition of broccoli stayed the same. It stayed green. It still looked like miniature trees. It still gave off the same aroma and still placed its same ingredients on my tongue. But something changed in me. All of a sudden, I realized how lovely broccoli was, how tasty and healthy it was to me. The reality of broccoli wanted it wanted to do good to me made me fall in love with it. All of a sudden, I wanted to eat steamed broccoli. It was tasty. But it did not change. Christians, likewise, obedience to Christ is not burdensome. The commands of our Lord are not burdensome to you. The commands of Christ have stayed the same. The commands of Christ are to free you, are to protect you, are to nourish you, are to help you. Are, uh, Manifested love towards you. It's not the commands of Christ that change. It's your heart that will change. Your heart understanding the commands of Christ are good. The commands of Christ are not a burden. Obedience to Christ. Giving your all to Him in every part of your life. Forsaking sin. Forsaking everything that hinders you from that is not a burden. Now let me remind you what I'm not saying this morning is that following Christ is easy. In fact you may have to eat broccoli and not like it. It may be difficult at times, and there's no doubt that it is hard to enter into the kingdom of God. It is hard to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who will find it. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and there are few who are on it. It is not a popular route. It is not the overarching desire of men's hearts. There are many in the church today who think that the road to eternal life is an easy life. There are many who listen to Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. They think that Romans 10.9 is some sort of magical word that just spring you out of hell and usher you into heaven because you quoted them and because you've memorized them. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a divine enablement to do all and to live your all for God. You have been enabled by the grace and mercy of Christ to do that which is impossible, to please God. The commands of Christ this morning are not burdensome to you. They are not burdensome to me. Turning away from greedy desires to get good grades and to get high-paying jobs and to live a nice, cush life is not burdensome. Giving up ungodly relationships that are self-focused and unbiblical, that is not burdensome. Taking the internet out of your room so that you might stop looking at pornography or chucking your computer out the window to keep you from temptation and sin is not burdensome. Spending time with the Lord and with your Savior every day is not burdensome confessing your sins to other people, asking them to pray for you, asking for forgiveness, is not burdensome. Praying for the saints, praying for the members of CBC, printing out the CBC prayer list and praying, it's not burdensome. Evangelizing the lost is not burdensome. None of those things are burdensome. And yet every one of us knows how our heart sometimes responds to those commands. But like the contents of broccoli, they are Unchanging. The commands of Christ are unburdensome, but they will change your heart. They will change your heart. The world hears the call of Christ. The world hears the Gospel. And they say, I will not submit to you. I will not do what you tell me to do. And they're like people going down a raft on the river. They're like people in a river at Raft partying and having a good time. And yet at the end of the river is a massive waterfall and they are about to go over the edge. And Christ is on the side of the river and He is shouting out to them, come to the side. There is great danger at the end of the river and you will fall and you will perish. Come to the side of the river. And they hear the Gospel and they look at Christ and they mock and they scorn and they paddle faster down the river. But you heard Him. And you jumped out of the raft. And you swam to the side. You swam to safety. And Christ reached out and He pulled you from the river. And you sat on the side with Him. Around His campfire. And He has fed you. And He has watched over you. And He has protected you. He has cared for you. And yet sometimes, you get up from His side. And you go back to the river. To its edge. And you peer out and you watch them going down the river, and you look at the good time they're having, you hear their laughter, and you wonder what it would be like to swim back out there and get in the raft. Don't do it. Don't go back to the raft. Stay with our Lord at His side. Pursue Him with all of your heart. It is much better to be at the shore with Christ Peter jumped out of the boat. He left his fish. He swam to the shores to be with Christ. Because he wanted to be with Christ. Brothers and sisters, if your heart is tired this morning of obedience, and if you have tasted the commands of Christ and they have seemed tasteless to you, it is not Christ, it is you. Christ is offering you obedience that will bring joy. Obedience that will bring delight. He has drawn you to a side to warm yourself with His fire. And you might cherish fellowship and communion with Him. The third solution to live this kind of life is to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I understand that we're kind of splitting hairs here. But this really is what makes it worship. Here is what will help us understand this verse. That we have no problem doing everything for ourselves. That we eat for ourselves. We can do everything to comfort ourselves. We have no problem trying to get the attention from others to please our desires. But Paul stands all those things on its head and says, Do all these things for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first question that we would have to ask ourselves is simple questions. And let me back up and say, I understand this is a very, very simple sermon. This is just one of those those foundational Christian sermons that's so broad. And we've heard them so many times. And yet the first question that we've got to ask ourselves in this text is, Can I do this for the glory of Christ? can I do the things that I'm doing in my life at this very moment? Can I do them for Jesus? This text calls us to scrutiny. It calls us to search our hearts and to ask, is this, first of all, something that's even possible to bring honor to the Lord? And we need to remind ourselves again of the certain texts, some more of these... Massive thematic verses of reminding us of who we belong to. Let me read some scriptures to you. I encourage you, if, if you don't have these verses memorized, these are the, these are the pinnacle Christian verses that you, you've got to store in your own hearts. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 says, Therefore we have also as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. These verses are the epitome and the core of the Christian life. When a body grows cold, the blood flows slowly. A sluggishness to obey means your blood is running thick and your heart is beating slow. It is the knowledge of the cross of Christ that melts the slush in your heart. It is the remembering that the debt which was hostile to us became hellish to Him on the cross that will melt our sluggish blood and fill it with fire. It is the reminder that you are owned by Christ that will melt your slushy heart. It's the simple truth that you don't belong to yourself, that we must daily tell ourselves we belong to Christ. We must become a people who wake up in the morning exhorting ourselves that our lives are not our own. Therefore, we must glorify God with our bodies. We have to wake up every morning. We have to. You have to literally rise out of bed and say, I do not live for myself. You have to preach the text to yourself. The book of Colossians, in chapter two, verses eleven through fourteen, gives us the who, what, when, where, and how of the gospel. Colossians two verse eleven says, "And in Him, you were also circumcised. In Him, that's the who, Jesus Christ. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." There's the what, that circumcision of the heart that you are saved, the removal of the sinful heart, giving you clean hands. Verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. There's the when. When did your heart change when you believed through faith? Verse 13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. That's the where. It was made possible at the cross. Christ died for you. Verse 14 is the how. Having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He did it at the cross. And the only question that's left is why? Why has he done this? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he bear our sins in his body? Colossians three verse seventeen is the why. So that whatever we would do in word or deed would be done for him. I love Titus two fourteen. I know you do as well. Speaking of Christ, it says who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, in order to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. You belong to Christ. You need to do all for His glory, for His namesake. The fourth and final solution. The fourth and final solution, doing all for the glory of God, is to do it all while giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Giving thanks through Him to God the Father. It's a present active participle. It means it's a continuous action. This is a, a habit of your life a habitual pattern of your life. The giving of thanks to Him flows from understanding of who He is and what He has done. Listen to these Scriptures as well. Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. It says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in His ways and to love Him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. There's Old Testament, Colossians 3.17. Psalm 101-3 Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve Yahweh with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that Yahweh Himself is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. The Old Testament is filled with reminders that God did not create nor save Israel for themselves but for His own glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So let me encourage you this way. As has been so often about sanctification as you've heard the, the coined phrase, it's not about perfection but it's about direction. Right? Colossians 3:17 and the weight of it is not about perfection, but it is about direction. Even the apostle Peter was led away in hypocrisy, and yet the truth of Scripture brought him back to live for the Lord. God longs for you to bring glory to Him. You must do it all for Him because He has enabled you to do it. You must do it all for Him because all includes every word and deed. You must do it all for Him because that is what Christ has done for you. You must do it all for Him because this is our response of thanksgiving. This is the pressing on toward our Lord, growing and learning what it means to please Him. And so perhaps this morning your hearts are filled with a desire to do all for Him. There is a new longing you will leave this morning refreshed by the Word. You'll leave with a new fire with a desire to do all for Him. And yet we come back again, how do we do this? How do we do these things? Well, let me first point you to verse 16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, as Bob read this morning. That the fuel, the fire, the, to bring about such ambition begins with absorbing the nutrients of Scripture. And we need to be exhorted to this over and over because the things of life will continue to crowd and fight against these things there is no man there is no woman in this room who has won the battle with consistency in the word of God and if you won it last week you'll have to fight it again this week I urge you again to seek first his kingdom melt your hearts in the morning with the word the word of God is what will encourage you and empower you if you're a full-time worker, it means you've got to work hard at having a Christ-centered mindset all day long. And you all know how hard that is. You're working full-time. You're sitting in a keyboard. You're punching in numbers. Or you're teaching children at school. And the command is to have the mindset like, I have to do this for Christ. And you have to do it, And it's not an easy task. And it doesn't come automatically because you had your Bible under your pillow at night. But it comes through constantly Asking the Lord, help you set your mind on the Word. Help you set your mind on Christ. If you're a stay-at-home mom, and you're surrounded by needy, restless, rambunctious, often whining and thankless children, that you've got to remember who your Master is. You've got to remember why you're doing this. You've got to remember who you're doing it for. If you're in junior high, if you're in high school, if you're in college, you've got to remember this morning why you're taking those classes. Why you play four-square at recess. Or at CCF. (laughs) You've got to remember who you're living for and why you're doing all things. And I want to remind you this morning, I want you to look at your life for a few moments. And if you're in a place where there is habitual sin, there is struggle, I want you to remember that Jesus Christ has saved you. And that there is growth in your life. There is sanctification. It is impossible, I would say it is sin, if you look at your life as a Christian and all you are is discouraged. Because you have to look and see that Jesus Christ is working in your soul. And He is sanctifying you in His truth. And He is conforming you. He promises you that. Not just in the future, but even now He's doing that. He is changing you. And yet I remind you that if you are struggling and fighting with these sins to press on press on towards Christ I've heard it said that the most miserable people on the face of this planet are Christians living in sin the world loves to to live in sin but the Christian despises it to the Christian sin to him is like a heavy millstone hung around his neck and you know as well as I do that as you continue in those patterns at times, the millstone gets heavier and heavier, and your joy is seeping and leaking out of you. And then externally, you try to act like everything's okay, and yet in your heart it's burdened, and it's saddened, and it's sorrowful, and you want to be freed. And so, return to the Scriptures. Believe in the joy of obedience. Believe this morning that it's not in your own power that you will fight against sin, but it's in the divine enablement that you will turn and flee. Turn your eyes upon the Lord. Keep your eyes upon Him. When Lydia was learning to walk, she would look right at my eyes and she would walk directly at me. She would not look at her toys. She would not look at her little bear. She would not look at her dolly. She would not look at her blankie. She would look at Daddy and she would walk right to Him. And you likewise walk right to Christ. Do not look at the things on the right. Do not look at the things on the left. But keep your eyes fixed upon Him. And walk to Him. Delight yourself in Him. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. It does not mean try to figure out how to have a good relationship with Him. Try to figure out what is good about the Christian life. But it says, Delight yourself in the God of creation Himself. Remember that God is good. That God is our all that the shackles have been removed from your feet, that you've been freed from your sin. Pursue Christ this morning. Praise God this morning that He has enabled you to do all things for His glory. Praise God that there is much hope in the text of Scripture. There is hope for you this morning that He is the one who has enabled you well, lastly this morning, I want to exhort those of you who are still on the raft. If you're still in the raft and you're still thinking that at the end of the river is more fun, you're gravely mistaken. Yet that, that you're deceived in, in thinking that, that what is in the raft and the party that's going on there is, is somehow delightful. And yet it will end in death and it will end in destruction. And Christ said so clearly in, in Matthew chapter 7, 24-27, through 27, that the foolish man, he built his house upon the sand. The wise man, he built his house upon the rock. And the Scripture says, Look at these houses, and the houses look exactly the same. They're living with their central heating and their air conditioning. They have the gas... They have the stove. They have the same food. They have the same refrigerators. The same cars. Everything looks the same. The house looks exactly the same. And yet they are founded on two infinitely different bases. And Christ says the rains are going to fall. He says that the floods are going to rise. He says the winds are going to come. And when they hit that house, when they hit the house of the foolish man, when they hit the house of the man who is not built upon the rock, it is going to cra- collapse. And it says great will be its fall. The waterfall is massive. The fall is infinitely deep. I urge you this morning, if you are in the raft, to jump out of it and swim to the shore and be with Christ. Recognize that He is infinitely delightful, infinitely gracious, and infinitely merciful. And He is waiting for you this morning. The commands of our Lord are not burdensome. He will offer you forgiveness of your sins, freedom from them, everlasting joy. He will offer you even fellowship with Him for all of eternity. Father, we thank You this morning. Lord, elementary school texts. Father, we recognize this morning that such a text we have heard many times. We have been confronted with it numerous times. Lord, I pray this morning that You would light it afresh and light it anew. And that You would instill in my brothers and sisters this morning a new hope, a new ambition. God, I recognize that we need the Word week after week after week because one sermon will not change our entire life. I pray that even this text would fuel them for a week until next Sunday. That it would fuel their hearts until we come again to be filled up with the truth. Lord, let the Scriptures that were preached this morning build them up in their most holy faith. Satisfy their souls. Grant to them new hope and new desires for a new week. To seek hard after Christ one day at a time, knowing that perhaps tomorrow You will return or perhaps tomorrow even we ourselves will perish and You will bring us to Yourself. Let us fix ourselves for 24 hours upon You and worry about the next day trusting that You will draw us to Yourself. God, thank You again for the church, for Your bride whom You have washed and You are sanctifying. We praise You this morning for all that You are doing. I pray finally, God, that You would work in the hearts of the unbelievers in this room Perhaps those who cling to Romans 10.9 as some get-out-of-jail-free card. And yet, Lord, You demand a life that's for You. Lord, cause them to see they must swim to the shores. Cause them to see that they must repent of their sins. They must embrace Christ. They must worship Him and submit to His Lordship. We praise You for what You're going to do for Your name and for Your glory as You use us to bring fame to Your name. Amen.